You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When you arrive at the Auckland airport, you pass under a wooden archway with ceremonial carvings. And there's a recording of a Maori woman singing a karana, welcoming travelers to New Zealand. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is... The Pulse of the Planet. Little did I know that in a few weeks, I would be welcomed to a marae, a place where Maori meet for ceremonial, social, and sacred gatherings. The Māori are the indigenous population of New Zealand. They arrived in canoes a thousand years ago and discovered a country that was like a paradise. Two islands that shared a pleasant climate, good hunting, and plenty of natural resources. European colonists arrived in the 18th century, and since that time there were periods of coexistence and trade, followed by battles, treaties, and broken promises. Like many indigenous peoples around the world, the Mori were forced to not speak their language or practice their religion and other customs. They were deprived of any legal rights and their lands were confiscated. And over the past 60 years, this has gradually been changing. There are nearly 900,000 Māori in New Zealand, about 17% of the population. Māori youngsters are being taught their traditions again, and the Māori language appears on signage everywhere and in everyday speech. New Zealanders will greet you with kiora. It means have life. There's a movement afoot to change the name of New Zealand to Aotearoa, the Māori name for their country, which translates as Land of the Long White Cloud. I came to Aotearoa as a Fulbright specialist, working with students and others to tell their stories with the help of sound recordings. Whenever possible, I met with the Māori, and this podcast is a way for me to look back at some of those encounters and share them with you. I hope it will, in some small way, provide a glimpse of a remarkable people who I was privileged to spend time with. Oh, my God. 
At the entrance of the Te'opori Marai, there are calls and prayers, after which guests are greeted by a long line of hosts. With men, it's a touch of the forehead. With women, a kiss on both cheeks. Then the affairs of the day get underway. Today it's a talk to help locals secure land rights. So the court orders are like the thing that binds and gives you that legal right. We've tended to focus the way in which we describe and function as around a marae. Maria Meno Kapakini is CEO of the Te Aupori Iwi on the North Island. Iwi is the Maori word for tribe. In our context, Te Aupori is the name of the Iwi. We've tended to focus the way in which we describe and function as around a marae, Portahi marae, which is like our focal point bastion for, for things Maori, for all of our things that we love and prefer and we act those out. It's the place in which we debate, it's where we celebrate, it's where we bring our dead and it reminds us where we're from. Mm. I'm one of ten children, and the first seven were born in Tikal, and my dad wanted to stay there forever. He didn't want to leave Tikal, but many of those at that time in the 60s were forced by those means of, um, they wanted to develop the farm, but you needed extra resource. The banks were not going to give any loan to anybody with a name like Paratene or Te Ihupango or to whatever, so my dad had to change his name to Christopher, you know, to take on those ways. And he, of course, is one of many that were punished for speaking Māori. Now, what I understand about that now is that when you're stopped from speaking Māori, of that time you were stopped from being Māori, which is deeper than a deep thing, right? So my generation are the product of their experience to care and protect us and all they did was shelter us from those things that are fundamentally intrinsically Māori so you would be safe in another cultural setting. I didn't realise that that was the case until later on in adult life, you know, because I think, God, why did Daddy do that? Why didn't he speak Māori to us or Mummy and Daddy? And then, of course, I realised because it was a risk and dangerous for them to have done so. So I only get that now as an, as an adult. And now, of course, many of us, my age and others, have put all their efforts into re-schooling or re-teaching our kids and re-instigating them into their things that are fundamentally Māori. Because we absolutely and utterly believe if you know who you are and where you are from, the rest of the world is truly yours, you know, all for you to take in. 
Pinatawi Kleskovich is a far north district councillor. He's part of a new generation of Maori, well-educated, politically savvy, and socially responsible. He takes me to a hill overlooking a vast tract of fertile land. This is our farm. It's a 2,000 hectare farm. And we got this back from the government when we settled our grievances with the uh, Crown. It's nicknamed the food basket of the north. This is pretty much the largest farm owned by uh, Tangata Whenua in this part of the country. The treaty was signed in 1840. It was signed by the chiefs of the Ngāpuhi and the British. And uh, the treaty was meant to be set up as a partnership. But Māori were always to retain the ultimate sovereignty of all the treasures below the ground, on top of the ground, the ocean, the bird life, the entirety of it. Uh, but over the time, the uh, British and the Crown, they created um, a legislation that would dismember us from our land and essentially alienate us from the land that we knew was our home. About 183 years later, we've got our land back. And part of this is being leased for watermelon growing. But ultimately, we want to utilise this land to create uh, more positive enduring economic outcomes for the people who own this land and one way which we're going to do that we're going to plant the um, Montreal pine and we're going to use that Montreal pine that exotic tree to sequester as much carbon as we can over a 50-year period I think it's always important to um, emphasize environmental outcomes while pursuing economic development because an organization that produces export receipts but pollutes the river it's lopsided development and our ethics and what's ingrained in, in us is the ethic of kaitiakitanga which is guardianship so also always being able to balance the environmental impacts while we pursue the dollar we're coming into our, our nursery here across the road from Te Opori Marae I meet Tony Monroe manager of a plant nursery we eco-source seeds and we bring them in and we nurture them up to a point where they're big enough to be planted back out in the areas that we are looking to restore. What does eco-source mean? The gathering of seeds locally, collecting seeds from, I guess, our ancestors mm. because they, these trees are very quite big and they're very mature and we hope to be getting a lot of the the seeds from these mature trees to bring them in here and then we go through a process of propagating. These here are, are karaka and they've come out of an environment where there was no sunlight so you can sort of appreciate and understand that if we were to have taken these from out of their environment and left them out here they would surely have died. In the sun? Yes. So yes. now you have them shaded? So now we can bring them out. They've had full sun. We've had these for about nearly two, three months. Uh-huh. So they've hardened themselves to our harsh sunlight and that we hope to be able to help them to survive in the environment that we, they are now. I think you, you have to have a mindset to be in these, these environments. Um, just watering them is a, is a pleasure. All these, these plants here, they just remind me of children and of us doesn't matter how old we get we all still need a little bit of nurturing and um, you know we just need to um, work together I work with them they work with me not
Tahu McKenzie is a guide and educator at the Orokanui Eco Sanctuary on the South Island. I've been here for 13 years, and in that time, I've really seen the impact of having this protected space. And I just love the notion of sanctuary, that we're going into a sanctuary. So now, for those who cannot see, what do we have here? What is so this? This is our mighty fence of defense. and It's a fence? It's a mighty fence of defense. And it keeps out 13 varieties of introduced predator. <laughs> so if, if you were looking at this, you would see a uh, about a... Oh, I'm going to say it's about a seven-foot fence, six or seven feet, and it's fairly fine mesh, and, and it goes all around the eco-sanctuary. How big is the eco-sanctuary? It's 307 hectares, so it's absolutely huge. It's almost from the, just from the base of this mountain, from the base of this mountain all the way down to the sea. And uh, in terms of the fence, that really fine mesh that keeps out even newborn baby mice. Mm. So it's only six millimetres, and then we have this hood over the top and that keeps out cats and possums and then the fence goes under the ground so no one can dig in so it's completely impervious. So it can be on cats, possums, mice, rats, rabbits, rats, stoats, goats, ferrets, weasels, possums. Yeah. And when one door closes another door opens. <laughs> I always feel like we're going into the future here. Yeah. So here we are, we're in the future now. No introduced predators, only beautiful native species living in peace and tranquility. And if you would like, we can head up and have a look at some of our very endangered species a little bit later. Head down to see the birds at the bird feeder first. At a bird feeding station, we listen to the sounds of cockas, bellbirds, and other species. to the first Europeans arriving here, this whole uh, peninsula was covered in lowland coastal bush, so it would have been full of weka and uh, other birds, all of which were edible. Hoani Langsbury is manager of operations at the Royal Albatross Centre and a principal member of the Okatu Runaka Marae on New Zealand's South Island. There would have been uh, fur seals, the harbour was completely full of fish. You wouldn't have had to travel or actually work too hard to consume the bounties of this place. And we have a really good oral history. And a lot of that's passed to us through legend. One of the stories that has never been lost from the landscape and is relevant to this place here is legend of Tarawai. So Tarawai was chief or warrior, and he had, during a skirmish with the Nati Mamois, Tarawai had his prize midi, which is a handheld weapon, stolen. And during that fight, he had had his stomach cut open. 
and he had managed to crawl and make his way up onto Harbour Cone, which is that cone straight through there just behind Portobello. It's just below that ridge line. And about halfway up Harbour Cone, there's a cave in there, and he had caught himself some weka, and he had used the fat from the weka to make a poultice to heal himself. And so he spent several months up there healing himself. And then one night while the Kati Mamoi were sitting around their fires bragging about this prize midi that they had taken off Tarawai, he slipped in during the night and sat down in amongst them. And uh, as it was being passed around and it was handed to him, he jumped up and said, ha ha, I've got my midi back. And he ran off with it and they chased him all the way back to here. And he ran down across this beach here and using the bit of rope or lanyard off the end of the midi, he swung it over a tree and swung himself back up onto the cliff here into the path. So uh, from our perspective, that is just a mechanism for ensuring that we don't forget some of the feats of our past ancestors. And it's about a 30 metre cliff. He probably ended up climbing out there and he knew where the path was and the marmoy chasing him couldn't get to him. But, uh, you know, you don't let um, the truth get in the road of a good story. And so that prayer uh, talks about blocking off the outside world and it invites us um, into our own, to step into our own spirituality as we search and seek for higher forms of esoteric knowledge within our traditional uh, indigenous ways of thinking about the world. Over a three-week period, I worked with Professor Anne-Marie Jackson and her Maori graduate students at the University of Otago in Dunedin. The students were writing their dissertations, navigating the challenges of melding Maori stories, customs, and traditions to a Western academic format. In the process... We touched on many of the deeper issues that arise when attempting to share the heart of a traditional culture. Māori already lost their land, mm. they lost their power. The last bit of wealth that they had was their knowledge. Yeah. And so the last thing you want to give away is your knowledge. You've lost everything, so why give what you've got left? Mm. Right. And so, yeah, you only get snippets and all that early ethnography stuff, and, and that's why it still continues today. And then especially when you come in through a research lens, right. which is historically like, you know, your research is the methodology and the methods have historically been Western ideas of interviews. And there's still going to be like a mistrust. Even if you belong to the community. Exactly. Like, yeah. Mm. yeah. I think it's hard right now because even we're not whole enough mm. to even extend beyond ourselves sometimes. So that's almost, it's too far to go right now because yeah. we need to fill our baskets, mm. fill our, our home of our language, our traditions, our stuff first because mm. to even think about sharing beyond that is mm. eventually yes because that's who we are. We mm. are 
monarchy people, we are generous people. And yeah, and one has to always begin with where we are, we can't you know, yeah. make up things, and at the same time, you are ahead of where we are in the States uh, in terms yeah. of this movement towards a kind of, what's the word, reconciliation, mm. for lack of a better word. Maybe there's a better word. Uh, I guess you'll never understand the pain, the trauma, and the difficulties mm. of growing up Indigenous, mm. you know, in, in spaces where you're too white to be brown, but you're too brown to be white. Mm. It, it's not having to understand, but it's having that willingness to acknowledge that you don't understand. Let us speak our minds and let us be who we are because we're still battling with the pain ourselves. We're not looking for someone to offer us a Band-Aid and say, here you go. It's all fixed now. I, I'm sorry. Here's your $10 million for your land back. I'm sorry. We're not looking for that. We're still working through all that pain, that trauma that happened to us all those years ago. So best advice is just to listen and just leave it up to us, I guess, to get through our trauma and our pain first because I think that's where we're at in Aotearoa at the moment. Kia tau, kia tātou katoa, te atawhai o tātou araki a ihu karaiti. Mi te roha o te atua, mi te whiwhinga tahitanga, ki te wairoa tapu, aki, 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 amene. I want to thank Henemoa Elder, who paved the way for many of the connections on the North Island, and also Nancy Longnecker, Gianna Savoy, Jesse Baring, and Steve Ting at the University of Otago. My trip to New Zealand would not have been possible without their help. Thanks again also to those featured in the program, Penetawe Kleskovich, Maria Menokapakini, Tony Monroe, Tahu McKenzie, Hoani Langsbury, Anne-Marie Jackson, and all her students. Finally, my thanks to the Fulbright offices in both the United States and New Zealand who helped me navigate the pathway to being a Fulbright specialist. It's a wonderful program, by the way. Check it out online. The music was from the CD book Singing Treasures by Brian Flintoff, featuring musicians Hirini Melbourne and Richard Nuns. You can hear more of their music on the album Tekutefe on Rattle Records, New Zealand. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. <laughs> 